are listening to the Fuerte Network. Bienvenidos a todos, everyone. Welcome to Migrants on Air, an immigration podcast formerly known as We Are Home, Arizona. We are your hosts. My name is Carlos Yanez. Karina Dominguez. Danny Orona. We started this podcast back in 2021 as part of the We Are Home campaign in hopes for an immigration reform and a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. A lot has changed since then, including a rebrand of our podcast. Although the fight towards citizenship continues in this podcast, we want to have conversations about creating an inclusive movement that focuses on protecting immigrants beyond citizenship. Hola, bienvenidos a todos. Welcome to Migrants on Air, an immigration podcast. My name is Carlos Yel Navarro, and I'm here with my co-hosts, uh, Karina Dominguez and Dani Borona. You guys want to say hi? Sorry. Te fuiste dos semanas y ya te olvidaste de nosotros. I know. We haven't recorded in a while. We're a little rusty. But hi, everyone. This is Karina. I'm doing pretty good today. Pretty excited for the episode that we have today. Another Prop 3081, but this one is a special one. How are you, Danny? Doing really good. And yes, as we're near closer and closer to Election Day, this has been one of the biggest talking points that we've had. Prop 308 is one of the most important things on the ballot for yourself, for your children, and for future generations. Yeah, I think especially right now with, with everything going on with immigration, things are at a standstill. It's kind of nice to see like this possibility come out of a proposition. And before we get into like our special guests, super excited. I want to go over a little bit about what today's topic is going to be, Prop 308. Uh, and for those who don't know, tuition, specifically in-state tuition and access to higher education in Arizona has been really, really weird. Um, originally, it wasn't really tied to citizenship status. Really, it began when there was a lot of xenophobic sentiment and legislation in the early 2000s, which, you know, as we all, a lot of us know, it ended up with SB 1070. But before that, it ended up with something called Proposition 300, which basically made it illegal for in-state universities to provide in-state tuition and or in-state monies to undocumented students. Uh, and that affected a lot of people. We all know people who were in university at that time that weren't allowed to continue because of the steep price increases. In 2015, the Arizona Board of Regents allowed specifically DACA recipients after after the opening of DACA to access in-state tuition from 2015 to about 2018 until the Arizona Supreme Court decision uh, struck it down, I believe in 2019. From then on, there's been a standard 150% non-resident tuition rate for individuals who are eligible for that program. Karina, would you remind us about the the cost specifically for that 150%? Yeah, so the 150% tuition falls between 100%, which is in-state tuition, and 300%, which is out-of-state tuition. So usually for like ASU, U of A, and NAU, in-state tuition tends to be around like 5,000 to 7,000, and 150% would be maybe like around 8,000, 9,000, and then beforehand, out-of-state tuition would be up to like 13,000 a semester. And Which is super, super expensive. Yeah, it's poor to say that is a semester, not a full year. Yeah. That is per semester. And it doesn't get better if you're at a community college. I think a whole semester at a community college is still around four to $5,000 mm-hmm. uh, versus what it should be at $89 a credit. And individuals are still paying out-of-state tuition rates at community colleges. Karina, you were involved with the fight for, for the 150%. Do you remember a little bit about that time? Yeah, so I remember, so I went to 
to a community college in 2017. And then in 2018 is when I transferred to ASU. And during that time is when the 150% tuition came out for DACA recipients. And I didn't have DACA, so I was still paying out of state tuition. So for a couple of years, DACA recipients were able to get the 150% because they got in-state tuition taken away. And then I believe it was in 2019, uh, the fall of 2019, when the Arizona Board of Regents expanded the eligibility requirements to allow non-DACA recipients to access 150%. So that same fall semester, I saw my tuition drop from 13000 to like 7000 Yeah, so tuition, like a lot of immigration policies in Arizona, has been up and down and up and down. And I think this November, we have a chance to provide in-state tuition for all individuals, regardless of immigration status, with, with a few requisites, but it would level the playing field for a lot of individuals. Money is a really big barrier for higher education access. It's extremely expensive, even at in-state tuition rates. So to pay out-of-state tuition or even 150%, that's that's a band-aid. And I think it's time to be able to give individuals in-state tuition so they can you know, pursue higher education if they really want to. Yes. And with that being said, I think we are ready to introduce our guest speaker today. So we are going to have with us here at the studio Gloria Martinez Granados. She is a Phoenix, Arizona based artist born in Guanajuato, Mexico. Um, she graduated, she migrated to the United States of America with her family at eight years old. Gloria is uh, an interdisciplinary artist creating with indigenous practices, adding a contemporary approach by including printmaking, assemblage, installation, and performances to the more traditional arts of beadwork and weaving. And through this process, she develops themes around identity, dreams, place, home, and land. She emerges with her experience growing up undocumented in the United States and the legal limbo that she, leave, that she lives day to day as a documented person. So, Gloria, thank you so much for being here today with us. How are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me here. I'm doing really well, and I'm just excited to continue mm -hmm. the conversation about Prop 308 because it is so important. And it's great that we, uh, here in the state of Arizona, have this great opportunity to change that. We heard a little bit about you during your bio, but in your own words, who would you say you are and specifically what your work focuses on? Yeah, so, yeah, I think my bio covers a lot, but I am an artist. My art career wasn't the first career that I chose. I actually went to school for nursing, and I graduated in 2005. But because of my immigration status, I wasn't able to become a nurse. So that kind of put me in a new path where I was trying to figure out where I was going to go when that route didn't work out for me. And that's when I ended up coming into the arts. So I am a full-time artist. I live in Phoenix. I'm also a mother. My daughter's about to turn 18. So I kind of have a, a big kid. I've had challenges with uh, attaining higher education and also finding my way here as a community member and where I fit and how I can grow as a person and as a neighbor, as a daughter, as a mother, as someone that wants to be productive in our community. And having these immigration challenges always play a role in it. So I think more than anything, I am a human being who's just looking to belong. Now, throughout your journey, your educational journey, uh, you said that you graduated from nursing school. 
even knowing that you were were you undocumented at that time yes and knowing that what pushed you to continue through because myself i did one semester and was like okay I, i can't do this anymore it's too expensive and ended up stopping my educational journey right there being undocumented what made you push through to get all the way to the end of nursing school When I graduated in 2001 from high school, I was eligible for the presidential scholarship because of my high grades and Mm -hmm. just being a good student. Um, So I was given the scholarship. I then applied for the first bilingual nursing fellowship program that the state of Arizona began. And through that, I was able to gain funding so that I could pursue the career in nursing. However, when it came to being certified as a nurse by the state of Arizona, it required me to have a social security number. And that's what ultimately ended my career. So it was very detrimental, not just as a young person, having your dreams taken away and having had worked so hard. Right. But, you know, to the state itself, it just doesn't make sense because if you have this investment towards individuals it should be something that helps to continue benefit the state and it doesn't make sense to have this this valuable person that can do mm-hmm. something for the community and not not allow that to happen it, because of a piece of paper right it's a lost investment that just doesn't make sense right because at, when i graduated in 2009 when that semester I tried to do at GCC mm-hmm. went through the presidential scholarship as well. Mm-hmm. But except in in my case, they asked for the social security number right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And because I couldn't mm-hmm. provide one, they said, okay, well, we can't give you the scholarship. Right. So like they I guess they started pushing back what they were actually giving now mm-hmm. beforehand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you, since you graduated before Prop 300, How did you experience Prop 300 in 2006? By that time, I still had friends who were going to college and I saw how detrimented they were as well. It just made it more challenging for us to continue our education. So, you know, we did what we always do in the community. It's we come together and we take on the challenges and we push forward because even though my education as a nurse uh, was ended in one way, it doesn't completely take it away. There's so much that I learned that I don't practice it, right? Like I'm not going around putting IVs in <laughs> right. people or giving them medications <laughs> or diagnosing them or anything like that. But it taught me critical thinking and critical thinking was a huge aspect of it where you're going to learn that this is the procedure, this is how it's done. However, when you come to a situation where maybe you don't have the materials that are necessary at that time in that room, what do you do after that, right? So there's multiple answers that work. There is no right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And to me, learning that was just huge. And it's something that no piece of paper or a lack of piece of paper can take away from me. It's right. knowledge that mm-hmm. I carry forward in different ways. No, I really like that, especially um, they can take a lot from you, but they can't really take the knowledge that you gained or how you apply it. That was beautiful. I, I did want to ask, did those experiences, and I know for a lot of us, our negative experiences kind of shape and impact what we do after. Did those experiences shape your art in any sort of way? 
Yeah, you know, my art is completely surrounded by my experience growing up as an undocumented person. I think when you're in the process of art making, it's a lot of reflection on not just your environment, but emotions that you're experiencing at the time. So for me, art has been a healing form in the practice. When I'm in the studio and I'm creating something, it's that energy, right? I'm just being guided by my intuition and just seeing where the process is going to take me. And when it comes to the process of art as a healing form for me, it's reflecting on the trauma that I've experienced from being in the institution that constantly wants to get rid of me and doesn't allow me to grow and flourish as a human being. So after going through nursing school, I also realized how there's a large need for mental health, you know, for assessing mental health in ourselves, in our communities, and how that impacts the way that we think and the way that we put out actions um, as an individual that end up affecting communities. So in my artwork, it it starts with myself, but then when I present it to people, it expands into a larger conversation where, you know, when we're talking about migration, specifically in the state of Arizona, we've seen a lot of fear that has been pushed in order to have control over our communities and the fear itself doesn't produce uh, positive consequences. It, it creates division, and division is never good in a community because it stops us from really working together and focusing on the things that are working so that we can be stronger together. So after going through nursing school, I saw how art is a great tool to be able to uh, connect with others and to discuss these issues that we're going through and really having a deeper conversation because, you know, building a wall on the border, it's not going to fix things. It's not going to solve all the solutions. And this is an ever-changing process just in the same way that society runs. So when it comes to the artwork that I've been doing for Proposition 308, it's, you know, I really ask myself, what type of society stops education from happening within its community? And I think we, we really need to consider that regardless of whether, you know, you, you oppose it or you stand for it. I think it's still a question that needs to be asked and how that could make sense to cut education of our youth that they're our neighbors, they're our kids' friends, they're part of our community. It's not something that you're just going to get rid of. You're just going to make it more challenging for them to find a way to be good community members. Mm-hmm. And that art that you, that, that you create in order to send these messages, has that art, has art itself been a part of your life, your entire life, or was there a certain point where you found that, that that was your talent and your your mode of expressing yourself? So art wasn't a part of my daily life. It was something that I just like learned 
in school, right? When I was in school, I had art classes. And in high school, I had this jewelry fiber arts class where I was exposed to Wichol, the Waratica culture art, which are these, you know, they often make these masks that have uh, small seed beads that are very colorful, that have symbols of our connection to the universe. And that was very striking to me because it empowered me to have a connection to my culture, to really, you know, touch my roots and be empowered in a positive way and, you know, honor where I came from. So that impression in high school was something that I really, it it wasn't something that I thought about pursuing as a higher education because coming from a migrant family, you're always ingrained to be a lawyer, be a nurse, be a doctor. Yeah, Yeah, like have something that's going to give you, you know, that stability Mm -hmm. in life. So it wasn't something that I considered. However, when I was, you know, denied the opportunity to be a nurse, I found myself connecting to the Chicano artist here in the state of Arizona. Uh, my father-in-law, Martin Moreno, is a Chicano artist, and I was hanging out, you know, at different events that he was at, art openings, and I saw how this group of Chicano artists made their own space to support one another, and they would have these tables and vend their artwork and make a living. So that really just helped me to to see myself beyond you know, having a profession that was a systemic one, right? Where I needed this social security number in order to belong in that space and in order to be able to provide for myself and for my family. So I got an LLC and I started making jewelry, which is the skill that I had learned in high school. So, you know, when I think about that, I think that it's important that whatever skills we carry, we just really need to honor them at that time because it is going to be that that tenacity, right, that that builds and that allows us to maybe at that point in time we can't do it, but little by little we're chipping away to get to the final destination and you know, our, our paths, we tend to think of them in a linear matter, uh, manner in the same way that, you know, we, we hit these different milestones in school mm-hmm. where, you know, we go to grade school, we uh, have our eighth grade promotion, we go into high school. And, you know, it, it, it's great that we have systems like that that support our society to grow. But it's also important to know that we have these other systems within our communities that will also allow us that same growth. Speaking of those paths, did you choose the art class or did you just get put into an art class (laughs) and you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. It was necessary, right? It was like part of those Mm -hmm. electives that you need to fulfill. It wasn't your first choice. It was like you were placed in there. Yeah. So it's funny how like it works out at the end. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then going back a little bit to your piece, the uncertainty of higher education, can you talk a little bit about like the process or like how did you think to create that and then how did it end up in the art museum? So I think that often art reflects what you're going through in life. And 
it's always really hard for me to talk about the art because it is um, so emotionally tied to the experiences that I had. So when when I couldn't continue as a nurse, that just like it broke me. It really put me in a, in a great depression. And art was the thing that helped to pull me out of that. Um, so when I was thinking about the uncertainty of higher education, I actually started it out um, just installing it at different spaces. I installed it at a smaller gallery first, and then I installed it at a larger space in another gallery, and then another one. So it was just something that I continued to grow with. And I think that also mirrors my experience as a as a student here in the state of Arizona, where I, like you asked earlier, I knew that at some point my immigration status was going to be something that was going to have to have something, right? Mm-hmm. So, it's going to be an obstacle at one point or another. Right. So I, I knew that going into school and, you know, my... My professors often asked, you know, uh, had I found a solution for it, which I always <laughs> found it funny because it's like, well, I can't vote. Have you found a solution <laughs> for it? <laughs> you know, so it was something that I knew was going to come up at some point. And I just hoped that by that point there would be some way. At the time, I I married my high school sweetheart. So at the time, my high school sweetheart and I became pregnant and we got married. So, you know, the misconception of marrying a U.S. citizen and having the process be easy is a big one because mm-hmm. that's not true. You know, the immigration process is challenging on all levels. It, they're not just handing it out to you. Um, unnecessarily challenging right right so uh, you know here I was having all these challenges as a young mother a young student having this taken away from me and now needing a new path so the uh, uncertainty of higher education really taps into all of that so I knew that I wanted to continue working in the medium that I was working in uh, which is in lithography and lithography is a form of printmaking where you're using a, a piece of limestone. So it's a big piece of stone mm-hmm. that's flat and you use um, gum arabic, acid, grease, water. And the way that these elements combine, they repel one another and they also etch into the stone. So the image is literally etched on the stone and you're able to print multiples and multiples of the same thing. So I have been printing documents in my work because Mm -hmm. through these documents, I am reflecting on that experience that I've had, either having a document that other people will take for granted, right? In this Mm -hmm. case, your high school ID cards, where when you're in high school, that is the first form of um, identification where you can say like, you know, oh, I go to this school in Arizona, you know, Uh, it places you in a space, in a home, in a community. Um, But to other people who, you know, they don't know the challenges of being undocumented, Mm -hmm. they take something like that for granted. 
Um, so I took these ID cards and I printed them in this process because of the way that it's so labor intensive. And that labor to me symbolized the labor that it takes from students, right, mm -hmm. to make it through. And then, uh, you know, being an undocumented student to be able to make it through and knowing that you're going to be facing these challenges, it's got to be, you know, extremely difficult. So, you know, the way that the installation is also put together, it's in a collective way. It's the total is 2000 ID cards that are suspended from fishing line and they're held together and um, they're not fixed. They kind of have a movement to them. So again, I think, uh, you know, in the way that uh, they are a collective, but also an individual in some sense, I think that also speaks to the situation where it's not going to be every student that's affected by this, right? But what affects one will eventually affect all. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something very important that we have to see within our communities because with art as well, I have been an educator. I have gone back into classrooms and worked with students. And educators know that if one student is falling out of line for whatever reason that is, it doesn't just affect that one student, it disrupts everything else too. So if we're clipping the wings of these students, it's gonna affect more. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you so much for, for sharing all that. I think what resonated with me the most was like the ID card thing. Like I still carry my ASU ID even though I graduated two years ago. So I'm like, oh, what if something happens? I can like pull it out and be like, oh, I'm an ASU, like an ASU student. Like, you know, I belong to to this or whatever. So, yeah, I think that really resonated with do you, me. Do you use it to go to the movies? I do. <laughs> I get a discount. I did that for like Two four or five years. I went to GCC for one semester and I used that ID for like five years. Like you got to make your money's worth. <laughs> no, but I, I do want to go back to the point that you made that um, even if you do marry a U.S. citizen, like it's the process is really, really hard. I did want to ask, I know um, th there's this common like narrative surrounding like DACA recipients as well as like undocumented people in general, um, where a lot of politicians say, oh, they're young kids or they're they're like still in school. And I think that conversation applies here because a lot of people are adults. Like we've grown up just because immigration policies haven't changed doesn't mean that la vida sigue, like we're not like we're not stuck in time. So I think um, you, you being a mom and, and having a, a child of your own has that impacted your art as well in any way and has that changed how you how you not only see the immigration space but also see the importance of providing education for other kids yeah since i had my daughter at such a young age i also being you know undocumented and now documented and that you know just insecurity of having that type of situation it it really stopped me from wanting a bigger family. It was definitely one of the factors that I considered because I really wanted to be a parent that was very present, you know. Besides knowing these challenges, being undocumented, being a mother in general uh, is comes with challenges. I, I feel that this day and age, you know, the way that we have expanded so fast as a society, it's something that we really need to slow down and think more about 
how that is affecting our kids. So I think, you know, just being a parent in general comes with a lot of challenges and having an undocumented or documented status that just makes it so much harder. So I think we really do need to, to think about our migrant communities and specifically parents who have children because we know that food and rent and everything else is going up mm -hmm. and having things like this, it, it just, it, it doesn't make for a healthy community. So we really do need to find ways to be supportive to undocumented families that have children and also those undocumented children. We can't be placing barriers like this because they're going to be the ones that are taking care of us in the future. You know, um, I think when it comes to Proposition 308, we really need to emphasize that it's not asking for any sort of special treatment. Mm -hmm. What it's asking is just to have an equal play, right? If we need to pay for school, then we need to pay for school, but make it to what every other student is being charged. And if, you know, we're able to apply for scholarships that we're eligible for, then that's great. And, you know, when it comes to, to education, we really need to all get on the same page that in any society that's as advanced as we like to think our society is, free education should be the minimal thing that we're asking mm -hmm. for. Because if we really want to grow stronger as a society, education has to be key. Yes, and I think just, like, going back into, like, the whole community aspect, like, what do you think Prop 308 would mean for the community, and what would it mean for you? I think a yes on Proposition 308 would mean that we're going to allow people to follow their passion, to go really deep into studies that they're interested and passionate about, and that's going to mean that we're going to have healthier, happier individuals out in our streets, you know, people that we come into contact with, people that we're going to be collaborating with, people that we're going to be finding solutions to current issues that we're facing. It's going to mean that there are no obstacles, that we're allowing equal education rights for every student that has gone into the high school system here in the state of Arizona for at least two years. So it's not taking in someone that is outside of the state. These are students that are already in our mm -hmm. classrooms. These are students that are, you know, like I said, our neighbors, our friends, our family. They're part of our community already. So it's gonna strengthen our community in many ways. Do you all have anything, anything else to add? Yeah, before we, we end, did you want to uh, say where your art is being displayed and how people can access it? Yeah, so um, the art is being displayed at the Phoenix Art Museum. It's part of the uh, Layman Awards that were given out to emerging artists. So it's my art showing along with other awardees. And it's being displayed in Cat's Lower. And I also have another piece that is in the cat's upper level in the contemporary art space. 
Thank you so much, Gloria. We'll definitely have to go check it out. Um, and hopefully, you know, after November 8th, it also brings like a whole new other meaning to your art. Yeah. So is there anywhere else that people can follow you on social medias or anything like that where they can find your art specifically? Yeah, I definitely put a lot of my artwork up on social media. You can follow me at Borderless Creative. Awesome. Thank you, Gloria. Well, I think that wraps up the episode. Now we just want to remind you all of some key dates. So on November 4th, it is the last day for early voting. On November 1st, it is the last day that you can mail in your ballot. So if you haven't mailed it in by November 1st, you're going to have to go drop it off in person. And to find your polling location, you can visit fuerte.org slash go vote. And remember, November 8th is election day and polls are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Apart from there, being able to find your polling, once again, at fuerte.org slash go vote, you can also keep an eye out on anything that's going around your voting locations. There is a lot of voter intimidation that is happening. There is a lot of people trying to get in the way of fair elections and justice. Uh, it's one of those things that, I mean, if you see something, say something. If you want to volunteer as a person just to watch and uh, literally just to watch to make sure nothing is, is happening at poll locations, you can find opportunities like that at fuerte.org, along with many of our other partner organizations. Uh, this is uh, midterms is one of the most important elections that we have going into the next uh, election cycle in 2024. And also, we would like to invite people to party to the polls that it's going to be November 3rd from 7 a.m. 7 p.m. in Maryville. Uh, Karina, we don't have a specific spot here, right? Yeah, more details to come on our social media. So follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, everywhere at Fuerte AC. Yeah, it's going to be an all-day event. It's going to be music. It's going to be food. It's going to be maybe some prizes here and there. But more importantly, it's going to be community. Migrants on Air, formerly known as We Are Home Arizona, is a Fuerte Network production in association with Frecuencia Alterna and Arona Multimedia. Uh, I want to formally thank everyone who was involved in this episode. Um, my co-hosts, uh, Dani Orona and Karina Dominguez. Our guest, uh, Gloria. Graphics for this episode were done by Karina Dominguez. Our theme song is Crazy Like That by Lo-Fi. Production and editing was also done by Karina Dominguez, uh, my co-host, Dani Orona and Jesus Vasquez. If you would like to follow us on Spotify and for this and all other Fuerte content, uh, make sure to log on to Fuerte.org and sign up for our mailing list. Y pues muchas gracias. Um, happy to be back on the podcast and super excited for all the future conversations and the continuing conversations we're going to have. Muchas gracias. Yes, thank, thank you, you so much.